0: This is a State Library of Queensland podcast. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners are advised that this podcast contains the names of people who have passed away.
1: An uncle had throat cancer, and so his voice was a whisper. And so you actually had to get very close to him to hear. But he had a clarity of vision. That that kind of like, despite the whispering words, he was very deliberative, very precise in what he was saying.
0: Kevin Smith, the young Torres Strait Islander lawyer you met in episode four, didn't actually meet Eddie until way later in the case. In fact, Kevin's encounter would be in the final days of Eddie's life. It was January, 1992.
1: My sense was, this is a man with a formidable intellect. That's really what, what came through to me, of, of such iron will, really, I mean, so, a resilience, that even though he was he was afflicted with this disease that was going to be, um, and he, he passed away about three days later, he was resolute. And resilient and determined and strong and clear about everything and even though even though he knew what he was facing
0: Kevin's boss tasked him to go to the Royal Brisbane Hospital to write up the will for a very sick elder that elder of course was Eddie Marbo. Kevin sat at his bedside and listened
1: but also learned. I was only with him for about an hour and a half, but it was one of the most um, amazing moments of my professional life. And I, and I also would say personal. Um, I've, I've never really had a moment like that with anyone. Um, and, yeah, so, so, yeah, just a wonderful man. I mean, I've come to know his family since then, uh, which, is, which is wonderful, but uh, he, was, uh, yeah, he, he, he was a memorable man, a very powerful man.
0: Sitting by Eddie's bedside and having that encounter is something that stayed with Kevin for the last three decades. As you've heard throughout this series, the aftermath of five Meriam people taking on the state of Queensland has had a far-reaching effect. The Marbo name even became known overseas. Former community school student, Noel Zaro, remembers a particular story he heard about a man from Badu in the Torres Strait
2: who was visiting a First Nations community in the US. And when he went there, the chief himself heard about, about him being there. The chief of that um, Native American community, the chief himself came and shook his hand. Came personally to meet that fellow from, from badu And he met him. And he said to him, the chief said to that Bado Island man, he said, um, because of what, what Mabo done for you you guys in Australia, and then he pointed his hand out towards the mountain, towards the plains, and he said, all of that belongs to us because of what Mabo done. And he paid homage to that fellow from Badu Island. And that Badu Island fellow thought, hang on, I'm not in I'm, I'm Island, I'm, I'm from Badu. He took that as an honour to Uncle Poiki. So it goes to show how the Mabo case has made a big impact on other Indigenous nations around the world.
0: It's stories like this which show just how monumental this case was and the impact it had on others. Not only for those who were there or connected to the case in some way, but also for the next generation of Torres Strait Islanders.
1: And I would think just like the Marbo decision is a step, there are other steps moving forward. So what's happened since the 1992
0: decision? How is Eddie Marbo being remembered? Hi, I'm Eddie is a six part series from the State Library of Queensland. It explores how a man from a remote island in the Torres Strait helped dismantle a 200 year old law which claimed that, prior to European settlement, Australia was terra nullius, nobody's land, uninhabited. It's been 30 years since the landmark case changed not only Australian law, but also profoundly changed how the history of this country is taught, written, and critically thought about. Eddie Koiki Mabo, along with his co-plaintiffs, Reverend Dave Passy, Sam Passy, James Rice, and Selowa Ma forever altered Australia I'm Rhianna Patrick, a Torres Strait Islander journalist, and I was 15 when the judgment was handed down. In episode six, we look at the legacy of the Merriam High Court case, and whether there's still unfinished business which needs to be settled. When you're in the middle of a significant moment, It can sometimes be hard to see past what it all means or what it might become. But Eddie had a vision for his people, for the Torres Strait, that he could see way beyond the success of the case. He knew what he wanted the future to be and what it could look like for his community. You'll recall from the previous episodes that Greg McIntyre was a part of Eddie's legal team. He believes, had this case been at any other time, it might not have succeeded the way it did,
3: It was a a confluence of the right people at the right time in the right circumstances. The High Court judges themselves, we had Justice Jared Brennan. He was a barrister for the Northern Land Council, so he had an understanding of the connection of Aboriginal people to land from that work. Uh, John Toohey, as I said, was on the High Court at that time and he had been for a number of years as the Aboriginal Land Commissioner, so he also had a deep understanding of traditional connection to land and why that was important for Aboriginal and Islander people. And we had Sir William Dean and and Mary Gordon who, although not from a background of, of particular knowledge about Aboriginal people, were people with a very small liberal view of property rights and of human rights. I mean, Eddie was one of those very important people. Uh, and so, having such a strong Indigenous advocate in Eddie Marbo, and ultimately Dave Passi supporting that, uh, along with judges who had some understanding what it was all about, uh, and our legal team, we managed to get across the line.
0: For former community school student Noel Zaro, the legacy Eddie Marbo left behind is more than just Eddie's personal fight. He says people should remember Eddie's family
2: too, and how long the battle took. It took 10 years for Uncle Koeki and the plaintiffs to win that case. And what, well, what actually his family went through because it was the Mabo name that was getting chucked up there in, the, in, in front, you know? And so everyone was everyone was like, um, a lot of, lot of hassles was being made against the Mabo family, you know? Through Uncle Koeki. And some of them made to Uncle Koike, a lot of insults and, and aggression sort of thing. The legacy is um, to know who Uncle Koiki is, what he fought for, where he comes from, and what he has proved to the world. Thirty years on,
0: it's clear that the Meriam case and the earlier land rights cases, which made the High Court challenge possible, dramatically changed the Australian legal system. It recognised the land rights of the Meriam people of Mer in the eastern part of the Torres Strait, as well as the laws and customs which governed traditional land ownership on the island. And it added the concept of native title into Australian law, which saw the creation of native title laws, along with an independent body, the National Native Title Tribunal, which was set up to oversee the expected influx of new cases. Crucially, the case overturned the legal fiction of Terra Nullius, land belonging to no
4: one. Gail Marbo, Eddie's daughter. The legacy that my dad's left is that he undid a 200-year-old law that is the most significant change to Australian history. And he did that to show that Indigenous people still and do have a connection to their lands. And so for me, that's his legacy.
1: As Kevin Smith puts it. I mean, this, this is the most important legal decision of this country. I, I, I genuinely believe that.
0: It's an impressive legacy to have. Eddie's daughter Gail hopes she can pass on what she learned from her dad during this time to her own children
4: for what my dad's taught me and given me passion about i've hoped i've passed that on to my own children because his system worked and you know he was a male doing that whereas i'm a female trying to ch- work in the work in a male orientated world in within my own culture and I'm finding it hard. So hopefully my son will step in, hear me talk about the passions of my father and instill passion with him within him to help his family, as do all my other children with their families.
0: Another child of one of the plaintiffs is Charles Passy, the son of co-plaintiff Dave Passy. Dave passed not long after the 25th anniversary of the case, and Charles believes there's still work to be done.
5: Now, he passed away um, not seeing, if I can put it that way, the fruits of what the, the, the decision, you know, because he said to, to some of the family members, he said this, um, what we've been fighting for with the Marble case is we fought for recognition plan now, the next generation, Yupla fight for ownership. So maybe there's things in, in Dad that, that he didn't see being fulfilled by the Miriam. So it's a great time for us, you know, the 30th anniversary to sit down as a people now, and say, okay, where to from here?
0: So what could the next 30 years look like? Here's Greg McIntyre again.
3: Well, I'd, I'd like us to have have treaties at both national and state and territory levels, um, which do provide a, a basis for reconciliation. I think there needs to be a voice uh, at national and state and territory levels where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are heard and are engaged with government in... Improving the social and economic circumstances of of First Nations peoples uh, on an equal footing with the rest of society.
0: Kevin Smith agrees. He believes one of the next steps could be to leverage the legacy of the Meriam case and the rights at one to begin a serious, substantive conversation around treaty.
1: So how might how might you have treaties with First Nations people that have been recognized through the Native title process? It just makes sense that you would then have treaties with those very First Nations that have got Native title rights. So I think actually using the Native title process, it actually as a springboard to another conversation about treaty. And that's really where I think, and and you know, because we've actually learnt how to negotiate through this process, I actually think that native title is important in closing the gap because we have a gap around social, economic uh, factors caused by dispossession or legal invisibility. If you actually use the native title process, because native title is recognition, you start to to, to get to areas, what we need to talk about to, to close the gap. Kevin is optimistic in how native title could be used to achieve more. So I think native title, has a link there. I think it's got a really important link to, if we ever get to voices to parliament, I think native title is going to be a really practical stepping stone as to how you might build regional voices and local voices uh, into a constitution. So looking forward, I think that native title, despite its shortcomings, I think it's a, a powerful enabling process for other aspirations. And that aspiration, if we can just be, be, be really frank about it, is the right to self-determine, the right to self-determination. And I suppose this is why international instruments are so important because we've got the United Nations Declaration on Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and that declaration is a blueprint as to how self-determination can work. So you could use native title that actually came to be because of developments internationally, you're then using Native Title as a process to then uh, see how it applies with the Declaration on Rights of Indigenous People to pursue that very thing that I think Uncle Koyki wanted, the right to self-determine.
0: Kevin is encouraged that the practice of compensation is now entering the Native Title arena. In March 2019, the High Court handed down its first ever decision relating to native title compensation, which included how to put a price on intangible spiritual harm or cultural loss, for lack of a better word. The Timber Creek case in the Northern Territory awarded just over $2.5 million, which included $1.3 million for
1: cultural loss. But the most important thing about this case was that the court said We're just not going to leave this to economic loss. Just terms compensation needs to take into account the impact that your extinguishing act had on the culture being practiced. And they use the term cultural loss, but the term is a little bit awkward because you haven't lost your culture, but that's the term they use. So that's the term that we've got at the moment. It's probably more to do with, cultural impact. So the impact, it's not the loss of your culture, it's the impact of the Extinguishing Act on your culture. And in that case, the cultural loss was far greater than the actual economic loss.
0: As native title laws continue to evolve, is there unfinished business when it comes to the legacy of the Maryam case? Torres Strait
6: Islander broadcaster, Karen Patterson. Oh, Absolutely they still unfinished business. I mean, I, I go home to the Torres Strait. People don't own their land. You know, state government runs the housing on the islands. There's very little freehold title in the islands. So we know that there are always housing shortages on the islands. We may have established sea rights and that sort of stuff and, and have, you know, our own industries related to fisheries, but we still have our overcrowding in our homes, we still have poor health outcomes, diabetes is rife, Um, you know. Three decades ago you wouldn't have heard of having a dialysis machine in the Torres Straits required for kidney dialysis. Okay,
0: clearly Karen believes there is a lot of unfinished business and she doesn't
6: mince her words. So on one hand, while we've seen this recognition in law, we are going worse in all the other things that make us have meaningful, lasting lives because those things like Housing, health, education are still being denied to our people because the people controlling those resources are not Indigenous people. Decisions are still being made in George Street, Brisbane or Canberra about our people in the Torres Strait. Yeah, we've got the Torres Strait Regional Authority but it's all white bureaucrats, middle managers who are making the decisions and I guess What we're needing is strong leadership. I mean the kind of leadership that um, Uncle Eddie showed.
0: Charles sees the anniversary as an opportunity to continue the work that Eddie, James, Dave, Sam and Selawar started. But he understands the path ahead will be a long and rocky one.
5: How do we sit down now as a people and plan our way forward? You know, and plan our way forward because decisions we make during that time can throw more chains around our neck can slow us down in terms of moving forward I mean we talk about sovereignty but we also need to act and, and start walking as sovereign people and I think we haven't done that successfully in getting our people to be like that I think there's too much based on rights Um, so we expect things to be given to us because of our rights but what uncle kweki and the plaintiffs and dad and everyone pushed for was the recognition of our responsibility to that land so how do we interpret that and make it become a thing where we stand on our responsibility because from that land should come strong families from that land should come powerful culture, from that land comes our connection to our spirit. So hopefully in here now is the 30th anniversary, it's a time and it's an opportunity um, for the Miriam to lead the way but all of us together because this decision is for all of us. Then we come together, okay let's sit down now and start planning where we go from here. I think we have to, we can't just sit and wait we just got to do it, because all the plaintiffs have gone now.
0: Greg also concedes that there's more to be done and that sometimes the results of native title can be disappointing.
3: Uh, I mean, a lot of the people who managed to get the terminations of native title and had set up prescribed bodies corporate then have no funding base from which to manage the lands that they have, uh, and they they would say that they're not better off socially or economically I mean others in areas where there's iron ore mining for example uh, have gained a lot of financial benefits which they wouldn't have otherwise gained so it's it could be criticized for being patchy in its in its results and as I say there's criticism of it for creating division within community but in mean my my view is, as I say, I think it was a launching pad from which a broader political Indigenous movement has sprung.
0: As a young student who learned a lot from Eddie, Noel would like more young people to know about what this Meriam group of plaintiffs did.
2: I think that it should be in the main um, mainstream curriculum for mainstream Australia to learn properly about both Indigenous cultures of Australia, mainland Australia, which is mainland Australia, Aboriginal people, and also us Torres Strait Islanders who live here on the mainland as well, as well as the islands up in the Torres Strait. That awareness should come through mainstream, where it's not. If they do learn about Indigenous culture, it's only about Aboriginal culture, mostly. If they learn about Torres Strait Islander culture, it probably be through who where Antipoiki comes from and stuff like that. But um, that awareness has got to be made, done for future generations to be taught.
0: Torres Strait Islander broadcaster Karen Patterson has some advice for young islanders as the next generation who'll be the ones doing this work into the future.
6: We've got to control our own affairs. We've got to respect our elders and we've got to keep our culture strong and keep our connection to country strong. I mean, easy for me to say that. I live in, you know, on on Aboriginal land, thousands of kilometres away from, from my community. But, um, you know, some of us do have to make that decision where we have to move away from home for our families and that sort of stuff, but not forget who you are. And when that call to action comes from our mob back home, answer the call. Or when you're here on Aboriginal land, represent your people
1: to the best